you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges 10. Actually, 11. Uh, as Brandon said, uh, next week we are going to go to two services, one at 11, I mean one at 9.30 and one at 11.15. Um, we just feel like it's the time to do that. Last week we were busting at the seams and the week before was the same thing. So uh, it's something we've been looking at for a while and we think now is the time. And if we have one service with seven people and one with 90, we'll change again. So um, in terms of what you do... Uh, you can pick either one. Uh, the band will do the same songs. I'll do the same deal. Uh, we'll have the full children's ministry at both both um, slots. So you come whichever one works for you, and you don't have to lock in. Whatever works for you from week to week will be um, fine with us. So uh, that's good. I was thinking about going to two services. And when I was in um, seminary, uh, probably eight years ago, I remember writing down that to me, two services means two churches. And I've never really liked the idea of having to, to, to do the same thing twice. It doesn't feel the same from one to the next. And it's just weird to me. If, if, the, if the church is a family, well, usually your family doesn't eat dinner in shifts. Usually you eat all at once. And so it feels weird to me to do two services. But honestly, we don't have a lot of options um, at this point, I guess we can lock the door if we at 10:15, and that would leave out a lot of you. Um, so we could do that uh, if we wanted to. Uh, healthy organisms grow, and so I guess the fact that we're growing that's a good thing. And um, on the other side of that, I think there is a sense in which do we lose some of what we have? If you guys wanted to be in a big church, you wouldn't be here. You see how big these walls are. If you wanted to be a part of a mega church, you wouldn't be in this room, and that's not what we're going for. We're not trying to see how big we can get by um, any stretch. One of the things that I think a lot of y'all have said and that we've said that we like about our body here is it does feel like a family. There's an intimacy here that uh, I think we can wonder, well, are we going to lose that if we start having multiple services? And I would say no. It's the same number of people are going to be in here. And there's actually, I think it will create more opportunities for us, um, it's difficult to really connect with folks when people are sitting on the floor and doing all that kind of thing. And uh, the end of August, I'm going to lay out a few things for y'all, some more intentional ways of connecting. I think that's what it means. If we're not all going to be together on Sunday morning, we need to look for other opportunities to connect. Some of you, you're fine. You don't, you're good to kind of come in and leave, and that's what you want, and that's totally fine. But for others that are really looking to connect and for this to be your family. There's some other things that we're going to do, some ways that you can connect with one another that I think will kind of mitigate the fact that we'll have two services. So I think it is, it's kind of bittersweet. Um, the good is that we are growing. It's better after a year to be going to two services instead of closing the doors. And um, this, the kind of the, the other end of that is there is a sense in which we can lose a little bit of the family feel, but I think there's some things we can do to keep that from happening. So we'll let you know more about that as we go. Some of you all have met uh, my friend. His name is Tom Fraley. Uh, he was here in March, and he preached uh, a message here at Stonebridge. And this was something. He was also here last August. We said last week that 
we thought somewhere around here was our one-year anniversary of being in, the, in this building, and it was August 5th, somebody told me. So we're kind of at that one-year mark. And this was some things Tom Fraley prayed for us at the, the beginning of last August. Uh, our church came out of Riverstone, which is on the corner of Barrett Parkway in Stylesboro, and there were about 30 people, 32, 33 adults, last uh, August, and we all kind of gathered and Tom prayed for us, and we asked him when he prayed for us just to kind of listen to God and see if there was anything God wanted to share with us about our body. And so these are some things that he said, and this maybe will help you um, figure out where we're headed as well. These are just some bullet points. This is not scripture. These are just some impressions he had. Uh, as he was praying for us. Uh, and they're not, they're just, uh, they're bullets. They're, this isn't like a well-thought-out deal here. Bridge, moving people toward their destiny in God that they would not reach otherwise. This church will be the vehicle for people to move into the land of their purpose. Kind of the picture he saw was a bridge over the Mississippi River. It's held up by the deep footings of the word and the river of God, but also held up from above, which he thought that was prayer. People won't necessarily stay with you for 10 years, your purpose will be to move them from one place where they are in God and to move them on into their future destiny. He will give you pillars that will stand firmly in the river to support you, but that structure is for the purpose of getting people to their next place in God. You may even find that the church becomes a training place. You may be surprised as God brings you people from a further distance than you expected and sends them out to greater distances than you would have thought. In 10 years, it may become commonplace. It's not about the bridge. It's about moving people into their destiny. It's about moving people from where they have been to a place they otherwise couldn't go with God. And that's kind of, that's my heart. What I want to see is I want to help as many people as possible become as much like Jesus as possible before they die. And I think in order for us to do that, we, do, we need a little more space. And so at this point, we're going to multiply services and we'll see how that goes. So that's where that's coming from. Again, it's not any desire on my part or on the leadership's part to have some big church or anything like that that we can feel good about ourselves. We do feel like God's desire for us as a church is to help people get where he wants them to go. And that's what we want to do. So uh, that's where all of this stuff is, is coming from. So I hope you all will just kind of bear with us as we work through. I'm quite certain there will be many kinks uh, in the next couple of weeks, and y'all, just like me choking on bread during communion, I'm sure there'll be more of those things to come. So y'all can uh, just bear with us. If there are people who you know uh, who would who come to this church, uh, please let them know uh, what we're doing, uh, that we're changing, so they don't get their feelings hurt uh, if they don't know or if they come in late or anything like that. So that's that. This is Judges 10, uh, Judges 11. This is actually a, uh, one of the worst stories um, in the Bible, it is, and you'll, you'll see why soon. Uh, we talked a little bit last week, we talked about Ruth, about the period of the judges. It was a time after um, you had Moses' generation took the people out of Egypt, Joshua, his generation, crossed over into the promised land. Now we've got the, the kids of that. These are like Moses' grandkids. It's that generation, and um, kind of the, the phrase for them is everyone did what he saw was right in his eyes. Everyone did whatever he thought was fit kind of deal. There was no real leadership. There were more a confederation of 12 tribes than any national, there wasn't a strong national identity, and it's before the monarchy. And so it's just this period of chaos. And we talked and said there was this cycle of kind of rebellion, and then God gave the people over to foreign oppressors, 
as to discipline them, to try to get them to wake up. At some point, the people woke up and repented, and he sent these kind of charismatic leaders called judges, and it wasn't guys with gavels. It was more like guys with swords. And he sent these leaders to come and to, to deliver the people. And as long as the judges were alive, things seemed to be okay. And once they died, the cycle repeated. And as you read through Judges, uh, you can see that it actually just continues to get worse and worse. One of the guys, or the guy we're going to talk about this morning, I think his name is Jephthah. It's really hard to say. P-H and T-H right next to each other. Um, So I'm going to go Jephthah as a way of saying that. And he, just a little background on him, his dad was was, his name was Gilead. And he had a wife and they had kids. And then his dad also had a prostitute. And he had a kid by this prostitute, and that was Jephthah. And the, I guess, legitimate kids ran Jephthah off because they didn't want to have to share any of their inheritance with him. So Jephthah is probably uh, insecure in terms of who he is because he's been run off from his family. And he, to me, he's kind of like a pirate. He wasn't in the ocean, but he's a pirate. said he was a mighty warrior, and he gathered a band of adventurers to him. So again, in my mind, he's a pirate. And that's kind of what he's doing, and he has a reputation as that. Now, the guys in, in Gilead in this town, in this area, apostate, rebelling against God, so he gives them over to some enemies, and they oppress the Israelites for about 18 years. And at some point, they get tired of this, cry out to God, help us. He kind of says, well, why don't you go to these other gods? And they say, no, we want you to help us. And he says, okay, I'm going to help you. And they say, we need somebody to to lead our army, and so who do they think of? Naturally, they think of the pirate. That's the guy who we need to come and lead our army. So they go and get Jephthah and say, we want you to lead our army, and he says, seriously? I mean, you ran me out. How do I know you want me back? And so he negotiates with them, and what turns out that the initial offer is for him to lead the army, and what he comes out with is, I'm going to lead the army, and I'm going to lead the people. I'm going to be the king. So he works that deal Pretty well. So Jephthah is a negotiator, and I also think he's pretty insecure. I don't think he has a lot of confidence in his position. And this is where the story picks up. This is after his guys have said, okay, we're, you're the leader, and you're the king. And he, Jephthah has written a letter to the foreign king, his counterpart, to kind of say, why are we fighting here? Why are you fighting us? And the guy says, well, you've stolen our land. And Jephthah says, no, you've stolen our land. And this is where we pick up. The king of Amnon, that's the bad guy. Uh, Ammon, uh, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah had sent him. That's the letter we just talked about. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. There's Jephthah the negotiator, and Jephthah the insecure, right there. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Meneth, as far as Abel, Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. 
You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, I will just say as a disclaimer so I don't lose you moms, just because that's in the Bible doesn't mean God approved of that. There's tons of stuff in the Bible that God does not approve of. I would say this is for sure in that category. Repeatedly throughout the law, God says no child sacrifice. That was common in the other religions in Canaan where these guys were taken over, and he made, went to great lengths to say, you guys can't do that, not acceptable to me. You see it in Leviticus, you see it several times in Deuteronomy. So just because it's in here and God doesn't strike Jephthah down with a lightning bolt doesn't mean that he approves. So don't get hung up on that. Just because, again, there's not a, a word saying that was wrong in this passage doesn't mean that somehow God was pleased with what Jephthah had done. Again, he was a negotiator, and I think he didn't have a lot of security in who he was, and so he made this um, vow. And, and really what I want us to see is, uh, as we kind of push into this next year for us, the thing I, one of the things I feel like the Lord wants to do in us as a people is to convince us of his willingness to act. I think if I were to ask you, can God do blank? Most of you would say, oh, totally he can do blank. If I were to ask you, will God do blank, that's when we get a little squeamish. You've all heard maybe guys say, uh, they're trying to disprove God. Can God create a rock that God can't lift? And you say, well, I'm stumped. If I say no, well, then there's something God can't do because he can't make this rock. And if I say yes, well, then they got me there too because then there's something else God can't do. He can't lift it. And there's this idea that omnipotence means God can do everything, including create a rock that he can't lift. And that idea of creating a rock that God can't lift, that's not something God can't do. That's just silly. It's nonsense. That's like saying, can God make a square circle? No. He can't make a square circle. If a circle is square, then it's a square. It's not a circle anymore. God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 5 because 2 plus 2 equals 4. God can't lie. There's, there's things that God can't do. Omnipotence means there's nothing outside of God that can prevent him from doing what he wills to do. If God wants to turn right, there's nothing outside of him that can make him turn left. That's what it means for him to be omnipotent. No, no one, nothing outside of God can cause him, can keep him from doing what he wants to do or can make him do something he doesn't want to do. If there's something God says, I'm going to accomplish, omnipotence means he's going to accomplish it. That's what it means for him to be omnipotent. It doesn't mean he can do things that are nonsense, like make circles square, or make rocks so big he can't lift them. That's just playing with words. That's not real. Most of us get God is omnipotent. If you believe in God, kind of, Right after that, you get, well, he's all-powerful. He can do pretty much what he wants to do. Again, most of us would say yes to God's capabilities. He's able to do blank. Where we fall down is his willingness. Is he willing to do what he's able to do? If I say, can God heal cancer, I bet most of you in this room would say, heck yeah, he can heal cancer. Do you think he will heal cancer? Mm, 
And the closer the person with cancer gets to you, the longer the hmm gets. It's easy to say, yeah, he's going to heal cancer for the person in Virginia who I never see. A lot harder for the person in my house who I see every day. And we have this thing where we know he can, we don't know he will, and so we sit with our hands in our pockets because we don't know what to do. And that's an area where I want us to grow. I want us, over the course of our next, when we're here in August of 2009, I want us to have grown in our confidence that God is willing to act, not just that he is able. I want us to get better in that area. And there's sometimes when I talk, I feel like, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten whatever it is that we're talking about. This is not one of those times. This is all kind of out in front of me here, and so it's not fully developed. It's, just, it's fuzzy, and it's the area where I feel like the Lord is pushing me, and so y'all are along for the ride as well. Because I think it's an area he wants to push us. As we think about that song that we sang, there's no one like our God and God of the city and greater things are yet to come, yay. Good. We all know he can do those things in our city. We know he can reduce a divorce rate and reduce a abortion rate and reduce a crime rate. And We know he can do all that stuff. We know he can get rid of corruption and we know he can bring in righteousness. We know he can do that stuff. But the question is, will he do that stuff? And that's a whole different world for a lot of us. Can he versus will he? I think what happened with Jephthah is he knew what God could do. He wasn't sure what God would do. And so he made a silly vow that had terrible consequences. You've got to think, if the dude's only got one child, who did he think was coming out the door of his house? There are only two choices, right? His wife or his daughter. Who else is left? Maybe he had some servants. Whoever comes out of my house, what did he think was going to come out of his house? They said the construction of that meant he couldn't have been an animal. And that wouldn't have been a big deal. God, if you give this army into my my hands, I'm going to sacrifice a cow. You'd have done that anyway. That's That's not a big deal. He was an idiot. That could be the subtitle of Judges. Judges, the idiots. Half of them are. Read it. These guys do stuff that just doesn't, they don't get it. And it's easy for me or you maybe to look back and say, my goodness, how in the world could you ever make a promise like that? And if you made the promise, for goodness sakes, why in the world are you going through with it? But we do the same thing. It's just less extreme all the time. God, if you'll get me out of this mess, then I'll quit blank, whatever it was that got me into the mess. God, if you'll give me this, then I'll give you this. God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this for you. We do it all the time. We all negotiate with God. And the reason we negotiate is because we don't think He's willing to act. You don't negotiate with a willing partner. You negotiate with someone you're trying to convince to go your way. If we knew, if Jephthah got, God is going to deliver these guys into your hands, He never makes that crazy vow. He doesn't have to try to manipulate God into working because he knows God is going to do it. The same thing is true of us. We're not quite as crass as he is because we're, we're a little more sophisticated, but it's the same thing. God, if you'll get me this job, I'll give you 10% of what I make. God, if you'll just help me, just give us a baby or give me a spouse, then I'll do this for you. 
God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I'll never lie or cheat or steal or not pay taxes or whatever it is that got you into the mess again. We do it all the time. A lot of times we prepay ours, though. We start doing it in advance. See, God, this is how serious I am. Something big's coming up on the horizon, and suddenly we start finding a lot more time to pray. See, God, make that work out for me, and I'm already praying more. I'm going to church more. I'm giving more. I'm loving more. I'm serving more. I'm cussing less. Whatever it is that we do, we, we kind of prepay our end of the bargain just to show the Lord how serious we are in our negotiating position. And then somehow that's supposed to make him return. Can't you just see him up there? Oh, well, if you're going to give me 10%, well, okay then. Oh, okay. It's like uh, our kids go to um, school down the street, and every Christmas they have something. I can't remember what it's called. It's not Secret Santa, but it's basically paraphernalia that they go in and buy and give you for Christmas. It's like combination note card holder, book light, tape measure things that say world's greatest dad. The holiday gift shop. So there's a holiday gift shop. And our kids come to us and they get money for the holiday gift shop. And then they go to the holiday gift shop and buy us gifts. And then we open those gifts for Christmas. Us negotiating with God is the same thing. It would be like if my kids then used what they bought me with my money as a bargaining chip to get something for themselves. Here, Dad, I'm going to give you the combo notepad tape measure. Will you get me a Wii? It's, it's all my stuff. How does that help? That's not a negotiating point for you. It's all my stuff. And that's how it is with the Lord. It's all His stuff. And when we negotiate, I'm sure He's going, What? Seriously? It's all His anyway. And yet we try to bargain with him over things. And the reason we bargain, it's just like Jephthah, because we don't get that he's willing to act. You don't negotiate with someone who you know is already going the direction you want them to go, who's already doing the things that you're going to ask them to do. The, the thing about negotiating, I think, another level is it's a transaction. And God's not looking for transactions. He's looking for relationships. He doesn't want a business partner. He's looking for a bride. And we completely miss what he's about when we do that. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. That doesn't, you, y'all are in relationships. That doesn't work in your relationships. It doesn't work in your friendships. It doesn't work in your marriages. It doesn't work for long. It's bad if that's how you're connecting with people. It's all, it's just, it's business transactions. There's no personal relationship there. And God's the same way. He's not, that's not what He's about. We're assuming He doesn't want to act. One thing I think about omnipotence, if God doesn't want to do something, He's probably not going to do it. And me saying, well, I'm going to start going to church every week, is probably not going to change His mind. Or me saying, I'm going to start being nicer to my kids, probably not going to change His mind if he's already decided he's not going to do something. That's part of the freedom that he has, I would say, as God. What he determines to do, he's going to do. And what he said he's not going to do, we're probably not going to change his mind to make him do those things. And you don't have to. This is um, Ezekiel 34. I just want to read you a chunk of this here. Let me find it. 
Y'all just listen. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who take care only of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. All right, here's the good part. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is verse 22. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so they may live in the desert and sleep in the forest in safety. I will bless them in the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. They will know that I, the Lord, their, their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Does that sound like the kind of guy you have to negotiate with? He's... Everything he said he was going to do. He looks out and says, nobody's taking care of my folks. The people who are supposed to be taking care of my people aren't taking care of my people. And so I'm going to step in and I'm going to take care of my people. That's not the kind of guy whose arm you have to twist. We need to get that. We don't have to convince him. Many of the things that are in our heart, many of the things that we want to see, we don't have to convince him to do. He's two steps ahead. 
He's already willing. He's looking for somebody to grab a hold of his willingness. We don't have to negotiate. You don't have to make crazy vows to try to get God to be God. You don't have to make ridiculous promises, bargaining, to try to get God to be a good shepherd. He's already said he is a good shepherd. You read right here. This is what he said he was going to do. You don't have to try to back him into a corner to get him to do that. That's what was already in his heart to do. Thousands of years before you were ever born. And if we can get that in our hearts, it will change the way we live. If we can get that this good shepherd who we follow is a good shepherd that we follow. He doesn't just put up with us. He's not bored by us. We don't bother him. You never ask too much. He's willing to do all of these things. He said, this is what I'm going to do. What he's looking for is somebody who will say, this is what you said you would do. Will you do it? We talked a few weeks ago about that uh, tidal wave. Remember that wave that we talked about a few weeks ago? And we said that wave is kind of like the grace of God. It's the, this activity of God. And it, it is what it is. And your choices are either cooperate with the wave and ride it or don't and get swamped. But the wave doesn't change. The only thing that changes is our position relative to that wave. If we're cooperating with it, it's going to take us where God wants us to go. And if we're not, we're going to get turned upside down. And it's not the wave's fault. It's us and it's our position. And there's a ton of things you can do to cooperate with the grace of God. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who agree with him, who are dependent upon him. And there's tons of things you can do as an expression of humility, as an expression of dependence and agreement. You can pray, you can fast, you can worship, you can love, you can serve, you can obey. You can do all of those things. And all of those things should be done. But what we need to realize is none of those things makes the wave happen. All of those things just put us on top of the wave. God doesn't send the wave because of you did something or because I did something. He sends the wave because he's gracious and because he's a good shepherd. All of those things, they just put us on the surfboard so we can go where God wants us to go. And you, know, you really only have two choices at the end of the day because the wave is coming. And it's going, God is omnipotent. It's going to get where he wants it to go. Your choices are do you want to ride it or do you want to be swamped by it? And that's it at the end of the day for all of us. Isaiah 64, 6, I think it is, says that our righteousness, it's filthy rags. Everything that we do independent of God, everything that we do in our flesh, no matter how good it is, if it's done independent of God, it's filthy rags. This is way too graphic, but I'm going to say it anyway. That word, filthy rags, that's kind of like, those are the first, that's first century feminine products right there. That's what he's talking about. This isn't just something with mud on it. This is, it's gross stuff. That's what he sees, all of the stuff done in our flesh, independent of him. That's what it is to him, no matter how good it seems like to us. Prayer in your flesh doesn't work. Worship doesn't work. Love doesn't work. Obedience doesn't work. Giving, none of it works 
if it's done in your flesh, if it's done independent of Him. It's not putting you on that wave. It's putting you standing there in front of it, disagreeing with God, independent, and you're going to get swamped. You don't want that. And neither do I. So this is it for us, kind of moving forward. The area where I really want to see us grow, I guess, spiritually, for lack of a better word, is I want us as a body to get to a place where we're convinced of God's willingness to act, where we don't throw out our righteousness. Well, God, I want you to heal them because we did this, or we prayed hard, or we fasted for 30 days, or we... No. No, that doesn't work. That's negotiating. And he doesn't enter into negotiations with us like that. What we want to say is, God, we want to figure out we, we want to recognize that this wave is coming because you sent it, because you're a good shepherd. And we want to ride that wave where, where you're taking us. We want to grab hold of your willingness to act. We want to say you're the God of this city. And there are things that you want to do in this city and the things you want to do in this church and the things you want to do in our heart. And there are things you want to do in our bodies and the things you want to do in our lives and our relationships. And, what, and we want to say yes to those things. We want to recognize your willingness to act. And I don't know how else to facilitate that, other than to say that's what I want to see us go after. And that's the the growing edge to me for us as a body. What does that look like for us to be a people who are convinced of God's willingness to actually be who he said he was, to be a good shepherd, to be the shepherd who, according to Ezekiel, goes out and finds sheep who are lost, who binds up those who are broken, who leads us to good pasture, who protects us. We want to become convinced of that and then to live out of that. And that will change everything. So let's pray. Why don't you all stand up, please? God, I think we know that you're capable. You are more than capable. We know you're strong and you're powerful and you move mountains. We, we get that. Lord, I pray that you would convince us of your willingness, God, that you would, we would become so convinced that you are a good shepherd that we would be surprised when we don't see things happen, not surprised when we do. God, I don't, again, I don't really know how to facilitate that or lead us into that at all. I acknowledge that you're the chief shepherd of this group, Jesus. You are the head of this church, and I ask you to be the head. As we move forward and grow and do all of those things, you're the head. And we look to you for direction, for guidance. You're the chief shepherd and we're not. We want to follow you wherever it is that you're taking us. And again, Lord, I don't really know how to do that other than to just open myself up and on behalf of the body, open up this group and ask you, Lord, to do a work in our hearts, that whatever that looks like, that we will become convinced of your willingness to act, God, that we would not be like Jephthah, 
who thinks we've got to twist your arm and manipulate you and negotiate with you and bargain with you. Or even worse, God, that we would be people who think we can't even get that far and so we don't ask for anything. We just keep our heads down and our mouths shut. Lord, show us what it means to follow a good shepherd. Show us what it means to be in relationship with a good father who gives good gifts to his children. God, we're not looking just to get stuff from you, but we want to relate to you uh, rightly. We want a full revelation of who you are and who you are is good. I pray, Lord, that again, that you would stir our hearts. We can't work that up. I'm already thinking of about 15 disclaimers in my head. God, I pray particularly for those, our kids, those who are young, maybe in their relationship with you, Lord, who don't have a lot of religious baggage, that they would lead the way in this in terms of recognizing the fact that you're a good father, that you're a good shepherd. And those of us who maybe been doing this for longer and have built up all of the reasons why you don't act, God, that we'd be willing to follow. God, not emotional, not jumping up and down a pep rally. I just pray right now as we stand here representing this body of people. Lord, we put a stake in the ground and say, you're a good shepherd. The things that you said you would do, we know that you're able to do. God, help us to know that you're willing to do. We're going to um, go back into worship here for a minute. If you have something uh, that you'd like us to pray for, we'll have prayer teams up front who would be more than happy to pray for you about anything uh, that's going on in your life, any area where you want to see the Lord work. Otherwise, um, maybe just... Worship for a minute. If you have some grand revelation that you'd like to share, I'd be more than willing to uh, hear that about what God is doing and saying about this idea of his willingness to work and his goodness. And I'll get back up in a couple of minutes and cut everybody loose. Jesus Lover of my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. You've taken me from the miry clay, set my feet upon the rock. Now I know I love. I need you Though the world might fall I'll never let you go Sing the people A sentence A census Okay, and um, But it was very common at that time for Rome To announce taxation in addition to registration During the time of the pilgrimage feast Why? The pilgrimage? Yeah. 
Well, the pilgrimage feast, they all gathered in Jerusalem. That's right, and we're going to go into that. Everybody came to Jerusalem. But you tell me, oh, well, they were in Bethlehem. Well, yes, but Jerusalem isn't very far from Bethlehem. So, yeah, pilgrimage. Yeah. Okay, so we know that Yeshua was most likely conceived around Hanukkah. Why do we know this? Well, it's based on the scriptural evidence that um, Elisheva conceived Yohanan during the time of Zechariah's temple service. It's right, it's right. Which, according to the rabbinical writings, was during the summer months. So it was probably conceived in June. And June is the what? Six months? Well, it would have been, you know. So if he was conceived in June, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, which is kind of where Hanukkah falls in our calendar. So he was most likely conceived around Hanukkah because, remember the angel of the Lord said, uh, well, let's look at Luke 1, 24 through 27. The CH. Well, um, you know what? Juanita, I'll let you look at my notes afterwards. That way we can continue on because um, we're recording this. And um, Okay, so in Luke 1, 24 through 27, After these days, Elisheba, his wife, conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus has the Lord done to me in the days in which he looked at me to take away my reproach among men. Now in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin pledged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Miriam. So we know that in Elisheba's six months of pregnancy, um, Miriam was visited by the angel Gabriel. So it was probably around Hanukkah time. So is that amazing? And then in Luke one thirty six it says, Behold, Elisheva, your relative, also has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So the angel even told Miriam, told Mary that, that her 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 aunt or her cousin Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy. So are we starting to see a pat, you know, because this is important. This is important to know when Jesus was was um, brought forth. Um, okay, so in Luke one forty one through forty five, it says, "It happened when Elisheva heard Miriam's greeting that the baby leaped in her womb, and Elisheva was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she called out with a loud voice and said, "Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb." Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of the things which have been spoken to her from the Lord. Can you imagine? I mean, I've never had a child, but can you imagine having the child in your, in your womb leap for joy? Does anybody remember what that word is in Hebrew? Who was there on Friday night? Zimka? No. Uh, Renan. Renan is the word for like leap. Oh, I'm thinking of joy. (laughs) That is the word for joy. Yeah, Zimka. No. Renan is the word for leap, Mom. 
Renan is the word for joy. There's like a million words in the Hebrew language for joy. And Renan, remember last week's lesson, was the word for joy. And it means to literally leap, to dance. And that's exactly what her, what Yohana, what that baby did inside her womb. Can you imagine? I mean, it wasn't just a hiccup. (laughs) What I got from this scripture is, from our last week's lesson, is joy results in shouting. Joy is not it's part, well. It, it can be because that's what's the word for shouting or or making a loud cry in in Hebrew for the word joy. The word is teruah, but the word renan means to leap. Okay. So she shouted because yes, she shouted. He leaped. Yeah. So <laughs> there was joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was joy. There was joy when the mother of, of her Lord came. And then in Luke one fifty six through fifty seven says, Miriam stayed with her about three months and then returned to her house. Now the time that Elisheva would go gave birth was fulfilled, and she brought forth a son. Okay, when would Yohanan be born? Think in for those of us who know the Jewish feasts and festivals. When would Passover? Passover. Yohanan, John, the, John was probably born around Passover. And so she was there three months. So she was probably there when John was born. She probably helped with the birth. And, and then, of course, Mary was three months along. Now, Hanukkah. Let's fast forward. So knowing that Elisheba was six months further along than Miriam and gave birth to Yohanan around the time of Passover, we can surmise that Yeshua was born in the fall, right? Instead of, and not winter. He was not born on December 25th. And more specifically, he was most likely born during the time of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is very important. I thought you said a while ago that he was born at Hanukkah. No, he was conceived at Hanukkah. If I said born, I'm sorry, I meant conceived. I might have. (laughs) But he was conceived at Hanukkah. Okay, so the Feast of Tabernacles is the last pilgrimage feast required by God. And we've got to go back to the beginning. Can someone open their Bibles to Deuteronomy 16.16, please? I know it's a lot to take in and I go pretty darn quick but that's why I let you look at my notes afterwards (laughs) and because you're going to have to go back through and digest all this this is yes go ahead Monita three times a year all of your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread at the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Tabernacles and they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed wow so it is required by God three times a year to travel to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feast now this is the last one of the year and in Hebrew booth is Sukkot S-U-K-K-O-T and there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread which is Passover or in Hebrew is Pesach there's the Feast of Weeks which is Shavuot or what we know as believers as Pentecost it's where we get our word Pentecostal and then it's also um, 
the last one is the Feast of Booze or Sukkot. Unleavened bread. There are so many names for the same thing. <laughs> Do you know, if I'm correct, what's the third one? The Booth. Feast of Booths. Booth. You I can use Booths. B-O-O-T-H-S, not B-O-O-Z-E. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that also called the Feast of Weeks? What? Which one is the Feast of Weeks? Shavuot? Shavuot. Is that is that called Feast of Weeks? Yes. Shavuot. I mean, it's like every every feast has like two names. Mm-hmm. Or three. Same. Or three. Yeah. It just depends how they yeah. were translated. Okay. So, knowing this, let's go to Luke two one through seven. I know we're going back and forth a lot in Luke, but this is very important Um, in the Hebrew names version and I put it in your Bible so you can follow along your Bible your notebook Um, but I put it in because I have the Hebrew names version and so I thought it was neat to so you could see the Hebraic names to things Um, Luke 2 1 through 7 okay and it's also in your notes but um, it says now it happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled and this was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria all went to enroll themselves everyone to his own city Yosef also went up from the Galil out of the city of Nazareth into Yehuda or into Judah to the city of David which is called Bethlehem or Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family of David to, en- to enroll himself with Miriam who was pledged to be married to him as a wife being pregnant and it happened while they were there that the day had come that she should give birth she brought forth her firstborn son and she wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn as we know Yeshua was born in Bethlehem meaning house of bread so how appropriate that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. That is neat. And as and it's no wonder that there was no room for the minute in the end. But it was not a stable our beloved Messiah was born in. It was a sukkah. S-U-K-K-A-H. And sukkah is a booth a pavilion, a tabernacle, a tent. It can take on many names. Um, It's a temporary dwelling place built for the Feast of Sukkot. Sukkot is, anytime you see sukkah, that's singular. Sukkot is plural, meaning many sukkahs. (laughs) So it was a time of booze. (laughs) B-O-O-T-H-S. And it literally means booze shelter or covering and was built to be a reminder to the Israelis that God tabernacled with them in the wilderness how amazing then it is that our Messiah was born in a sukkah as he himself came to tabernacle with us in human flesh tabernacle with us in human flesh 
sukkahs are built with three or four walls and an open roof. Michelle, do you remember building a sukkah? Or did you go to the synagogues? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to build one this year. So we're having a big Sukkot party at our house. And Rob's going to help us build a sukkah. And it's going to be very fun. Very fun. Um, The roof of the sukkah is then decorated with loose palm branches, dried flowers, and in our modern day, twinkly lights. Or festive lights. Mm-hmm. Palm branches. It is important to be able to look out through the roof as a reminder of the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. To move when God moved. Families also traditionally eat their evening meal and sleep in them. However, if there's guests, the sukkah is offered to the guests as lodging for the night. And this is important. It's called, um, I should have written it down. It's a Hebrew word meaning kind of guest. It's like Sukkot is a time when a lot of guests just kind of show up. And so there's a Hebrew name for that. And it's Ushpazim. Okay, I'll I'll, um, have to get back with you on that. But it's, um, it's a very cool... It's a very cool thing, and it happens a lot. It's a, it's just tradition, and so people show up. So sukkah is offered to the guests. So, according to Luke two six through seven, we're going to talk about the birth now. And it happened while they were there that the day had come when she would give birth, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the end. We next see Miriam wrapping Yeshua in swaddling cloth. Now I want you guys to get the gist of this because this is so precious. I thought it was so precious to me. Is what is what most amazing about the cloth that our Lord Messiah was wrapped in. It is that it most likely came from strips of the high priest linen garment worn into the most holy place during Yom Kippur. That's the one day a year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies the day of atonement these strips of cloth in Hebrew are called mapa or mitzpahat and were used as used as binding for Torah scrolls Torah scrolls they were used as binding to keep the Torah scrolls together because you know a scroll opens like this and so they were used as the binding to keep them together and according to scripture, whatever enters the Holy of Holies must be sanctified as holy, as nothing common can enter into the presence of the Shekinah glory of Elyon, or the Most High. And it is the same Shekinah glory ingrained into every fiber of the fabric that would normally bind the written Torah, but that holy night it embraced the living Torah, Yeshua. The living Torah. It embraced the what? Living Torah. The living word. I'm having a good time keeping up with you today. Are you? <laughs> it's a lot. I know. It's it's a lot of information to throw at you. That is so neat. So they weren't just rags from somewhere. Nope. They were holy. Yeah. They were Marmot. they were specific strips of cloth. Where would they have gotten those strips of cloth? From Uncle Zach. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Probably Uncle Zach got them for him. Uncle Zach, Aunt Elizabeth, you know, Aunt Lizzie, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But that's where he, they would have gotten them, is from, is from there. And so, because they knew, Zacharias knew that this was the Messiah coming. And, and so did Elisheba. Elisheba knew, she knew that she called the mother of my Lord. The mother of my Adonai. And so she knew that, that this was going to be the Messiah. And uh, you can guarantee she went to Zacharias and said, You are going to get some of those <laughs> mapas. This is not an option. And he's like, Yes, dear, I understand. <laughs> you know, I'm almost certain of it. But it would stand to reason that something that the Shekinah glory that was ingrained into every fiber. Because remember what happened to Moses when he went up on the mountain the second time? He came back down, and what happened to his face? It was glowing. It had that. It had that Shekinah glory all over him. Well, that was no different when the high priest would go into everything that goes into that holy of holies and met with the, to minister to the Lord, and that Shekinah glory of God came back out. So how appropriate. Um, I just think it's phenomenal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I love it. Okay, the next um, part is um, Luke 2.21. And it says, When eight days were fulfilled for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Yeshua, which was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Okay. In ancient Israel and, and today among, among Orthodox Jews, you have what's called a Barit Milah. And a Barit means, anybody? Covenant. Covenant. It is the covenant of cutting. And it's the... Um, so he was circumcised after eight days. Well, how long is Sukkot for those who know? Eight days. Eight days. So Yeshua was probably born on the first day of Sukkot. And he was probably... Um, circumcised the last day because you don't circumcise on a Sabbath the first day and the last day of Sukkot are Sabbaths and so you don't circumcise on a Sabbath so he was probably born not on Sabbath but the first day after Sabbath and then he was probably and then that following week he was circumcised Um, he was we observe that he was circumcised abiding by the heavenly father's commandment and covenant with Abraham as it was also that um, at this time of the feast of Sukkot had ended and Yeshua could have his Barit Milah or the covenant of cutting can somebody please look up Genesis 17 9 through 14 and I will make sure I pass my notebook around so you guys can go in and Get your I missed a lot of it. That's okay. I'll pass it around. We'll have catch up. Yeah. Genesis 17, 9-14? Yes. Can we read it? Yes, go ahead, Rob. God said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be <coughs> circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every every male among you 
who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so that's pretty clear here with Abraham. And, and you kind of go, well, why is this covenant so important? But it's very important because it has to do... Now my version is the Hebrew names version and it says, God said to Abraham, for as for you, you will keep my covenant, you and your seed after you. And it doesn't say seeds. I want everybody to notice that. It doesn't say seeds, plural. It says seed. And I believe this is talking about the Messianic. Um, but it's also meaning every and, and throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Um, and you shall circum- be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It will be a token of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old will be circumcised among you, every male throughout your generations. He who is born in the house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your seed. He who is born in in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. My covenant will be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that soul shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant does anybody notice anything interesting in here my covenant will be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant part of that but anybody else notice anything else notice where it says and your servant (coughs) who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your seed who are foreigners oh the Gentiles yeah Mm -hmm. Gentiles Gentiles so what he's talking about and this is important because this will go into play when in scripture when it says that you know it's not just about circumcising the physical but it's that circumcision of the heart and we cannot be a part of the kingdom of God we cannot be a part we cannot be descendants of Abraham male or female without the first circumcision of our heart Ooh, I wonder where that scripture is now that it's in Hebrews I believe Hebrews? I may have to find that okay <laughs> anyway that, yeah because circumcision it's, but it's very important that we understand circumcision it was also at this time that Yeshua was officially named baby boys were not named until they went through covenant they were not named until the eighth day. So Yeshua did not receive his name until that covenant, that cutting of flesh occurred. And then Yeshua was named. Yeshua means salvation, and his name is derived from Yehoshua, meaning God saves. And later on, there's a really cool scripture. And I can't wait to show it to you. But. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. 
Now, um, the ritual of purification and redemption of the firstborn. And you, you know, some people will be like, well, why do you, well, Christine, why do you gotta go into all this stuff that doesn't matter anymore? Um, it matters. And I'll, and you'll see why. Luke 2, 22-24 says, When the days of their purification, according to the Torah of Moshe, Torah is instruction, means instruction, Moshe is Moses, were fulfilled, they brought him up to Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim is the Hebrew way of saying Jerusalem, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in Torah of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the Torah of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. Just a little bit of commentary on the scripture here. Every woman had a a time of purification. And so when um, when that time was finished, then she would go to the temple and make a sacrifice. So she would go. But he went also. And this is very important. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's also interesting to say to learn that they gave a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And that was the least that was the smallest sacrifice according to the Torah or according to the instruction that they could give, which means that they were poor. Even though they had received the gold, they had not yet received the gold from the wise men. They had, you know, the Magi. They have not, they had not yet received that. And we're going to go into that a little bit more next week. But it's just important to see that their their gift was very humble. You know, God gave, sent His Son to live with very humble parents. You know, parents who were not rich in in provision. They had enough, but who you'll see more so were obedient and God knew they would be obedient to him Um, according to Leviticus 2.22 Miriam had to wait 40 days from the birth of Yeshua to complete her ritual purification it was at this time when Yosef and Miriam took Yeshua to Jerusalem for her temple, temple ritual purification sacrifice and Yosef's redeeming of the firstborn son this is really important um, can somebody look up Leviticus 12, 1 through 4? Or you can just read it from your notes, whatever. It's better for you to look it up then. You got it? I got it. Okay, go. Leviticus 12, mm-hmm. 1 through 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child... Then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of her foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification thirty-three days. She is not she shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Okay. And then in Numbers 18:15 it says, "Everything that opens the womb, all of flesh which they offer to the Lord, both of man and animal, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shall you surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you redeem, shall you redeem." It was worth mentioning that without the obedience of Yosef and Miriam, 
to do what God had called them to do in Torah, Yeshua could not have been our sacrifice. He couldn't have. He, they had to be absolutely, perfectly obedient to what God had called them to do. Otherwise, he couldn't have been our sacrifice. Because he had to be perfect in Torah. He had to fulfill the Torah completely. And he did. Um, our perfect atonement, he was our perfect atonement for sin. But because of his parents were but because his parents were strict observant Jews, obedient to all that the Father asked of them, the Heavenly Father, it is for this reason that they were chosen to be partners in one of God's greatest works of all time. Works of what? All time. And I think, you know, I'm I'm hoping that this is starting to get people like Understanding that this isn't just like something just for the Jews. It's important to understand because without their obedience, Yeshua have, could not have gone to that cross. He could not have hung on that tree. He just couldn't have because it, he wouldn't have fulfilled the law perfectly. And fulfill, by the way, you know, as we talked about before, but fulfill does not mean to end or complete. In the Hebraic thought, fulfill means to perform, not to complete. So just so we're aware of that. Um, Also, he went into the temple and he was blessed by Simon, or in Hebrew his name is Shimon. Um, Luke 2.25-31 says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Shimon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Yeshua, that they might do concerning concerning him according to the requirement of Torah, then he received him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are releasing your servant, Master, according to your word in peace. For my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. It's like this man, and I wonder, is it possible for us to be so hungry and burdened for the salvation of our country and our people that God would make a promise that we would see the source of that salvation before our own demise. What an amazing gift that would be. But he was burdened and he was hungry for the salvation of Israel. When Shimon or Simon saw Yeshua, one can only imagine the elation he must have felt to hold God in the flesh in his arms. And yet Shimon's first response was to pray to the Father for his release from this life and to bless not only Israel, but the whole world. Perhaps something that was not a popular concept among the most religious, the more religious Jews, and yet absolutely biblical. And Shimon prayed, Now Adonai, according to your word, your servant at this is at peace as you let him go. For I have seen with my own eyes your Yeshua, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light that will bring revelation to the Goyim, or the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. May the Lord make each one of us like Shimon, longing for the salvation of Israel and the nations. And that is the thing that I guess I want just to impart to you today, 
is when we are burdened for the salvation of Israel when we pray for the salvation of Israel for every single Israeli that walks that land for every single Jew that walks this earth when we pray for their salvation God is will come but he promised he wouldn't come again until all Israel says Baruch HaBashem Adonai blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and so we want that day to come and we know it's coming closer and closer because things are really crazy out there but we also know that um, you know as believers we need to get ourselves ready and prepared you know in in biblical days and, and in ancient Israel weddings were very different I'm going to go into the Jewish wedding and or a, a Hebrew wedding a biblical wedding uh, when I do Bride of Messiah but one thing that was really interesting is they spent a lot of time preparing themselves for their groom but they never knew when he was coming you know they didn't know until they heard the, the loud sounding of the shofar and the clanging pots and the cymbals they didn't know until that day but they spent a lot of time preparing they prepared themselves they got themselves ready to you know as a bride and, and we are the bride of the sign we need to do the same so this is what we're doing and hopefully this is part of that preparation is beginning to understand Jesus from a Jewish perspective because you know we don't discount the grace we don't discount that but we need to understand who he is and the more we understand who he is from a Jewish perspective just in my walk I've walked I walk more in freedom today understanding my Hebraic roots than I ever did going to a church that just constantly told me about grace because I understand the magnitude now of what he has done it's not just something in my head it's something tangible it's something that's transcendent the eight inches from my head to my heart and so now I know exactly what he's done for me and I understand why and I understand the need for for all the rituals and all the things that God brought forth in Torah I understand that now so my prayer for you is that you would just be blessed this week and that you go through I know we went through it really fast so I'm praying you know I'll send my notebook around so you can, <laughs> so you can write in write in the blanks but I hope you spend this week going through the study and rereading and re you know redigesting and just hide whatever it is that God puts in your heart just hide it in your heart and just hold on to it and re and regurgitate it and just bring it back up and just constantly talk well Heavenly Father Lord I thank you and I praise you that you have brought each one here and Father I know we went through it very quickly and Lord we have so much um, so much to, to share and so little time but Lord I pray that you would just um, just bring, bring back to mind Lord um, little things Lord little nuances little things that, that make so much more sense Father and, and kind of connect the dots of things that we never understood before but now we understand and Father, I just thank you and I praise you. And I ask right now, Lord, that you would just um, open yourself, Lord. Continue to to give me what it is you want everyone to hear and everyone to see. 
Father, Lord, I thank you and I praise you. I ask that everybody go this week into peace, Lord, that you would just give them your peace, Lord, that you would give them your perspective, and Father, that we would continue to walk in obedience to you. Hashem Yeshua.